Letter ninety two, part one of Letters of John Keats to His Family and Friends. Edited by Sidney Colvin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo. To George and Georgiana Keats. Sunday morning, February fourteenth, eighteen nineteen. My dear brother and sister, how is it that we have not heard from you from the settlement yet? The letters must surely have miscarried. I am in expectation every day. Peachy wrote me a few days ago, saying some more acquaintances of his were preparing to set out for Birkbeck. Therefore, I shall take the opportunity of sending you what I can muster in a sheet or two. I am still at Wentworth Place, indeed. I have kept indoors lately resolved if possible to rid myself of my sore throat consequently i have not been to see your mother since my return from chichester but my absence from her has been a great weight upon me i say since my return from chichester i believe i told you i was going thither i was nearly a fortnight at mr john snooks and a few days at old mr dilks nothing worth speaking of happened at either place I took down some thin paper and wrote on it a little poem called St. Agnes's Eve, which you shall have as it is when I have finished the blank part of the rest for you. I went out twice at Chichester to dowager card parties. I see very little now and very few persons, being almost tired of men and things. Brown and Dilk are very kind and considerate towards me. The Miss R's have been stopping next door lately but are very dull. Miss Brown and I have every now and then a chat and a tiff. Brown and Dilk are walking round the garden, hands in pockets, making observations. The literary world I know nothing about. There is a poem from Rogers Dead Born, and another satire is expected from Byron, called Don Giovanni. Yesterday I went to town for the first time for these three weeks, I met people from all parts and of all sets. Mr. Towers, one of the Holts, Mr. Domney Williams, Mr. Woodhouse, Mrs. Hazlitt and Son, Mrs. Webb, and Mrs. Septimus Brown. Mr. Woodhouse was looking up at a book window in Newgate Street, and, being short-sighted, twisted his muscles into so queer a stage that I stood by in doubt whether it was him or his brother, if he has one and turning round, saw Mrs. Hazlitt with the little Nero, her son. Woodhouse, on his features, subsiding, proved to be Woodhouse, and not his brother. I have had a little business with Mr. Abbey from time to time. He has behaved to me with a little brusquerie. This hurt me a little, especially when I knew him to be the only man in England who dared to say a thing to me I did not approve of without its being resented or at least noticed. So I wrote him about it, and have made an alteration in my favour. I expect from this to see more of Fanny, who has been quite shut out from me. I see Cobbett has been attacking the settlement, but I cannot tell what to believe, and shall be all out at elbows till I hear from you. I am invited to Miss Millar's birthday dance on the 19th. I am nearly sure I shall not be able to go. A dance would injure my throat very much. I see very little of Reynolds. Hunt, I hear, 
is going on very badly i mean in money matters i shall not be surprised to hear of the worst hayden too in consequence of his eyes is out at elbows i live as prudently as it is possible for me to do i've not seen haslam lately i've not seen richards for this half year rice for three months or charles calden clark for god knows when when i last called in henrietta street miss millar was very unwell and miss waldegrave as stead and self-possessed as usual henry was well there are two new tragedies one by the apostate ma and one by miss jane porter next week i'm going to stop at taylor's for a few days when i will see them both and tell you what they are mr and mrs bentley are well and all the young carrots i said nothing of consequence passed at snooks no more than this that i liked the family very much mr and mrs snook were very kind we used to have a little religion and politics together almost every evening and sometimes about you he proposed writing out for me his experience in farming for me to send to you if i should have an opportunity of talking to him about it i will get all i can at all events but you may say in your answer to this what value you place upon such information i have not seen mr lewis lately for i have shrank from going up the hill mr lewis went a few mornings ago to town with mrs braun they talked about me and i heard that mr l said a thing i am not at all contented with says he oh he is quite the little poet now this is abominable you might as well say bonaparte is quite the little soldier you see what it is to be under six foot and not a lord there's a long fuzz today in the examiner about a young man who delighted a young woman with a valentine i think it must be all yours brown and i are thinking of passing the summer at brussels if we do we shall go about the first of may we i e brown and i sit opposite one another all day authorizing and b an s instead of a z would give a different meaning he is at present writing a story of an old woman who lived in a forest and to whom the devil or one of his aides de fou came one night very late and in disguise the old dame set before him pudding after pudding mess after mess which he devours and moreover cast his eyes up at a side of bacon hanging over his head and at the same time ask if her cat is a rabbit on going he leaves her three pips of eve's apple and somehow she having lived a virgin all her life begins to repent of it and wished herself beautiful enough to make all the world and even the other world fall in love with her so it happens she sets out from her smoky cottage in magnificent apparel the first city she enters everyone falls in love with her from the prince to the blacksmith a young gentleman on his way to the church to be married leaves his unfortunate bride and follows this nonsuch a whole regiment of soldiers are smitten at once and follow her a whole convent of monks in corpus christi procession join the soldiers the mayor and corporation follow the same road old and young deaf and dumb all but the blind are smitten and form an immense concourse of people who what brown will do with them i know not the devil himself falls in love with her 
flies away with her to a desert place in consequence of which she lays an infinite number of eggs the eggs being hatched from time to time fill the world with many nuisances such as john knox george fox johanna southcote and gifford there have been within a fortnight eight failures of the highest consequence in london brown went a few evenings since to davenport's and on his coming in he talked about bad news in the city with such a face i began to think of a national bankruptcy i did not feel much surprised and was rather disappointed carlyle a bookseller on the hone principle has been issuing pamphlets from his shop in fleet street called the deist he was conveyed to newgate last thursday he intends making his own defence i was surprised to hear from taylor the amount of money of the bookseller's last sale what think you of twenty-five thousand pound he sold four thousand copies of lord byron i am sitting opposite the shakespeare i brought from the isle of wight and i never look at him but the silk tassels on it give me as much pleasure as the face of the poet itself in my next packet as this is one by the way i shall send you the pot of basil saint agnes eve and if i should have finished it a little thing called the eve of st mark you see what fine mother radcliffe names i have it is not my fault i do not search for them i have not gone on with hyperion for to tell the truth i have not been in great queue for writing lately i must wait for the spring to rouse me up a little the only time i went out from bedhampton was to see a chapel consecrated brown i and john snook the boy went in a chase behind a leaden horse brown drove but the horse did not mind him this chapel is built by a mr way a great jew converter who in that line has spent one hundred thousand pounds he maintains a great number of poor jews of course his communion plate was stolen he spoke to the clerk about it the clerk said he was very sorry adding i dare say your honour it's among us the chapel is built in mr way's park the consecration was not amusing there were a number of carriages and his house crammed with clergy they sanctified the chapel and it being a wet day consecrated the burial ground through the vestry window i begin to hate parsons they did not make me love them that day when i saw them in their proper colours a parson is a lamb in a drawing-room and a lion in a vestry the notions of society will not permit a parson to give way to his temper in any shape so he festers in himself his features get a peculiar diabolical self-sufficient iron stupid expression he is continually acting his mind is against every man and every man's mind is against him he is a hypocrite to the believer and a coward to the unbeliever he must be either a knave or an idiot and there is no man so much to be pitied as an idiot parson the soldier who is cheated into an esprit de corps by a redcoat a band and colours for the purpose of nothing is not half so pitiable as the parson who is led by the nose by the bench of bishops and is smothered in absurdities a poor necessary subaltern of the church friday february eighteenth the day before yesterday i went to romney street 
your mother was not at home but i have just written her that i shall see her on wednesday i called on mr lewis this morning he is very well and tells me not to be uneasy about letters the chances being so arbitrary he is going on as usual among his favorite democrat papers we had a chat as usual about cobbett and the westminster electors dilk has lately been very much harassed about the manner of educating his son he at length decided for a public school and then he did not know what school he has at last has decided for westminster and as charlie is to be a day boy dilk will remove to westminster we lead very quiet lives here dilk is at present in greek histories and antiquities and talks of nothing but the electors of westminster in the retreat of the ten thousand i never drink now above three glasses of wine and never any spirits and water though by the by the other day woodhouse took me to his coffee-house and ordered a bottle of claret now i like claret whenever i can have claret i must drink it tis the only palate affair that i am at all sensual in would it not be a good speck to send you some vine roots could it be done i'll inquire if you could make some wine like claret to drink on summer evenings in an arbor for really tis so fine it fills one mouth with a gushing freshness and goes down cool and feverless then you do not feel it quarrelling with your liver no it is rather a peacemaker and lies as quiet as it did in the grape then it is as fragrant as the queen bee and the more ethereal part of it mounts into the brain not assaulting the cerebral apartments like a bully in a bad house looking for his troll and hurrying from door to door bouncing against the wainscot but rather walks like aladdin about his own enchanted palace so gently that you do not feel his step other wines of a heavy and spiritous nature transform a man to a salinas this makes him a hermes and gives a woman the soul and immortality of Eridani, for whom bacchus always kept a good cellar of claret and even of that he could never persuade her to take above two cups i said the same claret is the only palate passion i have i forgot game i must plead guilty to the breast of a partridge the back of a hare the backbone of a grouse the wing inside of a pheasant and a woodcock passum talking of game i wish i could make it the lady whom i met at hastings and of whom i said something my last i think has lately made me many presents of game and enabled me to make as many she made me take home a pheasant the other day which i gave to mrs dilk on which to-morrow rice reynolds and the wentworthians will dine next door the next i intend for your mother these moderate sheets of paper are much more pleasant to write upon than those large thin sheets which i hope you by this time have received though that can't be now i think of it i've not said in any letter yet a word about my affairs in a word i am in no despair about them my poem has not at all succeeded in the course of a year or so i think i shall try the public again in a selfish point of view i should suffer my pride and my contempt of public opinion to hold me silent but for yours and fanny's sake i will pluck up a spirit and try again i've no doubt of success in a course of years if i persevere but it must be patience 
for the reviews have enervated and made indolent men's minds few think for themselves these reviews too are getting more and more powerful especially the quarterly they are like a superstition which the more it prostrates the crowd and the longer continues the more powerful it becomes just in proportion to their increasing weakness i was in hopes that when people saw as they must do now all the trickery and iniquity of these plagues they would scout them but no they are like the spectators at the westminster cockpit they like the battle and do not care who wins or loses brown is going on this morning with the story of his old woman and the devil he makes but slow progress the fact is it is a libel on the devil and as that person is brown's muse look ye if he libels his own muse how can he expect to write either brown or his muse must turn tail yesterday was charlie dilk's birthday brown and i were invited to tea during the evening nothing passed worth notice but a little conversation between mrs dilk and mrs brawn the subject was the watchman it was ten o'clock and mrs brawn who lived during the summer in brown's house and now lives in the road recognized her old watchman's voice and said that he came as far as her now indeed said mrs dilk does he turn the corner there have been some letters passed between me and haslam but i have not seen him lately the day before yesterday which i made a day of business i called upon him he was out as usual brown has been walking up and down the room a breeding now at this moment he is being delivered of a couplet and i dare say will be as well as can be expected gracious he has twins i have a long story to tell you about bailey i will say first the circumstances as plainly and as well as i can remember and then i will make my comment you know that bailey was very much cut up about a little jilt in the country somewhere i thought he was in a dying state about it when at oxford with him little supposing as i have since heard that he was at that very time making impatient love to marion reynolds and guess my astonishment at hearing after this that he had been trying at miss martin so matters have been so matters stood when he got ordained and went to a curacy near carlisle where the family of the gleegs reside there his susceptible heart was conquered by miss gleeg and thereby all his connections in town have been annulled both male and female i do not now remember clearly the facts these however i know he showed his correspondence with marion to gleeg returned all her letters and asked for his own he also wrote very abrupt letters to mrs reynolds i do not know any more of the martin affair than i have written above no doubt his conduct has been very bad the great thing to be considered is whether it is want of delicacy in principle or want of knowledge and polite experience and again weakness yes that it is and the want of a wife yes that is it and then marion made great bones of him although her mother and sister have teased her very much about it her conduct has been very upright throughout the whole affair she liked bailey as a brother but not as a husband especially as he used to woo her with the bible and jeremy taylor under his arm they walked in no grove but jeremy taylor's marion's obstinacy is some excuse 
but his so quickly taking to Miss Gleag can have no excuse except that of a ploughman who wants a wife. The thing which sways me more against him than anything else is Rice's conduct on the occasion. Rice would not make an immature resolve. He was ardent in his friendship for Bailey. He examined the whole for and against minutely, and he has abandoned Bailey entirely. All this I am not supposed by the Reynoldses to have any hint of. It will be a good lesson to the mother and daughters. Nothing would serve but Bailey. If you mention the word teapot, some of them came out with an apropos about Bailey. Noble fellow, fine fellow, was always in their mouths. This may teach them that the man who ridicules romance is the most romantic of men, that he who abuses women and slights them loves them the most that he who talks of roasting a man alive would not do it when it came to the push, and above all, that they are very shallow people who take everything literally. A man's life of any worth is a continual allegory, and very few eyes can see the mystery of his life, a life like the scriptures, figurative, which such people can no more make out than they can the Hebrew Bible. Lord Byron cuts a figure but he is not figurative. Shakespeare led a life of allegory. His works are the comments on it. March 12th, Friday. I went to town yesterday chiefly for the purpose of seeing some young men who were to take some letters for us to you, through the medium of Peachy. I was surprised and disappointed hearing that they had changed their minds and did not purpose going so far as Birkbeck's. I was much disappointed, for I had counted upon seeing some persons who were to see you, and upon your seeing some who had seen me. I have not only lost this opportunity, but the sale of the post-packet to New York or Philadelphia, by which last your brothers have sent some letters. The weather in town yesterday was so stifling that I could not remain here, though I wanted much to see Keene and Hotspur. I have by me at present Hazlitt's letter to Gifford. Perhaps you would like an extract or two from the high-seasoned parts. It begins thus. Sir, you have an ugly trick of saying what is not true of any one you do not like, and it will be the object of this letter to cure you of it. You say what you please of others. It is time you were told what you are. In doing this, give me the leave to borrow the familiarity of your style. For the fidelity of the picture I shall be answerable. You are a little person, but a considerable cat's paw, and so far worthy of notice. Your clandestine connection with persons high in office constantly influences your opinions, and alone gives importance to them. You are the government critic, a character nicely differing from that of a government spy. The invisible link which connects literature with the police. Again, your employer, Mr. Gifford, do not pay their hirelings for nothing, for condescending to notice weak and wicked sophistry, for pointing out to contempt what excites no admiration, for cautiously selecting a few specimens of bad taste and bad grammar where nothing else is to be found. They want your invisible pertness your mercenary malice, your impenetrable dullness, your barefaced impudence, your pragmatical self-sufficiency, 
your hypocritical zeal your pious frauds to stand in the gap of their prejudices and pretensions to fly blow and taint public opinion to defeat independent efforts to apply not the touch of the scorpion but the touch of the torpedo to youthful hopes to crawl and leave the slimy track of sophistry and lies over every work that does not dedicate its sweet leaves to some luminary of the treasury bench or is not fostered in the hotbed of corruption this is your office this is what is looked for at your hands and this you do not balk to sacrifice what little honesty and prostitute what little intellect you possess to any dirty job you are commissioned to execute they keep you as an ape does an apple in the corner of his jaw first mouthed to be at last swallowed you are by appointment literary toad-eater to greatness and taster to the court you have a natural aversion to whatever differs from your own pretensions and an acquired one for what gives offence to your superiors your vanity panders to your interests and your malice truckles only to your love of power if your instructive or premeditated abuse of your enviable trust were found wanting in a single instance if you were to make a single slip in getting up your select committee of enquiry and green bag report of the state of letters your occupation would be gone you would never after obtain a squeeze of the hand from acquaintance or a smile from a punk of quality the great and powerful whom you call wise and good do not like to have the privacy of their self-love startled by the obtrusive and unimaginable claims of literature and philosophy except through the intervention of people like you whom if they have common penetration they soon find out to be without any superiority of intellect or if they do not whom they can despise for their meanness of soul you have the office opposite to st peter you keep a corner in the public mind for foul prejudice and corrupt power to not engender in you volunteer your services to people of quality to ease scruples of mind and qualms of conscience you lay the flattering unction of venal prose and laureled verse to their souls you persuade them that there is neither purity of morals nor depth of understanding except in themselves and their hangers-on and would prevent the unhallowed names of liberty and humanity from ever being whispered in ears polite you sir do you not all this i cry you mercy then i took you for the editor of the quarterly review this is the sort of foy de joy he keeps up there is another extract or two one especially which i will copy to-morrow for the candles are burnt down and i am using the wax taper which has a long snuff on it the fire is at its last click i am sitting with my back to it with one foot rather askew upon the rug and the other with a heel a little elevated from the carpet i am writing this on the maid's tragedy which i have read since tea with great pleasure besides this volume of beaumont and fletcher there are on the table two volumes of chaucer and a new work of tom moore's called tom cribb's memorial to congress nothing in it these are trifles but i require nothing so much of you but that you will give one a like description of yourselves 
however it may be when you are writing to me could i see the same thing done of any great man long since dead it would be a great delight as to know in what position shakespeare sat when he began to be or not to be such things become interesting from distance of time or place i hope you are both now in that sweet sleep which no two beings deserve more than you do i must fancy so and please myself in the fancy of speaking a prayer and a blessing over you and your lives god bless you i whisper good nights in your ears and you will dream of me end of letter ninety two part one